right, now we're in Psalms. And we've been in this book, no surprise, since the beginning of this year. And we are continuing our journey through this beautiful book. And as I've shared often, when I've had the opportunity to share with you here in this platform, is that this book of Psalms is just an incredibly beautiful book. In other words, and I share this again with you all, if we want to know what it looks like for us to love God, to love God, we need to go to the book of Psalms, okay? We need, to, we need to go to this book and understand what it looks like for us to be able to love God, which, by the way, is the most important commandment that Jesus gave us, okay? And so the second is like it, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That is the book of Proverbs. If we want to know how to love one another, we should go to the book of Proverbs for that. And I'm speaking in generalities here, but nonetheless, there is still truth, I believe, in that. And so in, 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 it's just this beautiful, wonderful books of him and poetry and all of this stuff. And, and it, I hope that it has been helpful as we have journeyed through this series for you all and for me to get a picture of what it looks like for us to be in relationship with God himself. For us to be in relationship of, of, of with God who wants to be in relationship with us, who has done so many things, including ultimately death on the cross, so that we could be in a relationship with him. In other words, he has taken so much initiative for us to be able to have a relationship with, with him that when we come to the book of Psalms, we might find that oftentimes what we picture might be the relationship we have with God might in many ways be the opposite or a very different picture of what we might have when it comes to our relationship with God. Uh, sometimes, if you ever found it frustrating as a follower have you ever found it frustrating that he doesn't always answer our prayers in the ways that we want him to answer our prayers? Have you ever found it frustrating that you have been praying for things and it's just been years and years and years that you have been praying and God still seems to be communicating, wait, not yet. And we have an agenda. We have an agenda. God, I've got some things on the clock here. I've got to get this stuff decided. I am not going to be here forever. And God is like, yes, I know. No surprise there. No surprise there. I, I, think, I think sometimes it's kind of like we're Abraham in some ways. Remember Abraham, right? And, and he was told by God that you're going to be a father of a great nation. So many people that look at the stars, you can't count them all. Look at the sand by the ocean. You can't count all the grains. That is going to be you, Abraham. And when he died, and not only that, God said to him, and you're going to have this wonderful land that your people are going to occupy. And when Abraham died, do you know how many descendants he had? He had two. One was illegitimate. Do you know what property he had? He had a grave. That's what he owned. That's it. Now, I can't help but think, and there's evidence of this, that Abraham was thinking, okay, God, uh, I know you're going to promise me an offspring. Um, I'm kind of, you know, 100 years old here, man. Um, it's now or never. You know, I'm not getting any younger. And it's not as though God isn't aware of those dynamics, right? It's not as though God isn't aware of the fact that, oh, by the way, God, you promised me that I'm going to have this multitude of, of people that's going to be my descendants, and not only that, I'm going to have this, this land that all my descendants are going to be able to live in, and, 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 you know, clock's ticking. And God's like, I get it, Abraham. Not yet. Not yet. If that has ever been your journey, 
If that has ever been your experience at one time or another, you're in good company. Psalms is a really good book to come to, right? Psalms is a really good book to come to. Uh, there is a psalm that I'm not sharing with you today. Well, I kind of am. Um, uh, but anyways, David cries out, How long, O Lord? How long are you going to not respond? How long are you not going to subdue my enemies? How long are you going to wait until you rescue me? How long, Lord, is this going to take? How long? Right? I mean, that is, that is the cry not only of David, but I think that's the cry of so many of us, myself included, of how long, Lord, is this going to last? How long is it going to be until you actually come and do the things you promised you were going to do? If you've ever felt that way, trust me, you are in good company. So important is the book of Psalms that it has often been referred to as the little Bible. It's often been referred to as the little Bible. In fact, one author says this. He says, the loss of psalmodity, how about that for a word, in the church is one of the early indicators of the loss of faith. Us not being able to delve into this book, us not being able to actually look at what is being written here and the highs and the lows of what it is to be in relationship with God, for us not being able to understand what is going on here could very well be an impact on our faith and not a very good one at that. So this is many reasons why we are studying this book, not only for a few months, but for the entire year here at Summit Ridge. The importance of the book of Psalms cannot be, I believe, overstated. It is in the Psalms that we express joy and sorrow, loss and gain. We offer praise and thanksgiving, and perhaps most importantly, we see Jesus. We see Jesus. Today's Psalm that we're going to look at is an opportunity to do just that, for us to see Jesus. The Psalm we're going to look at today is Psalm 45. And as we will read it this morning, um, you will say, Dan, this is a wedding psalm. This is a wedding psalm. How is it that we are to see Jesus in this psalm? And I ask that, uh, hang on, we'll get there. But this is a messianic psalm, as there are several of them in this book of psalms that point us to Jesus. Why do I say that? Because this is one of the few psalms in which the New Testament, specifically the book of Hebrews, quotes from when describing Jesus. So that's how I know that this is a messianic psalm. I'll be honest with you, when I looked at this psalm several weeks ago as I was preparing to deliver this message, we were meeting as our worship team does every week to go over the message and all that kind of stuff, and I shared with them. And I just shared innocently. That's all I did. I did not know what was going to happen when I just shared innocently with them that I'm looking at this book of psalms, and I don't think I'm ready to preach from it. Because it's a wedding psalm. It's a psalm about a, a, a groom and a bride. And, and oftentimes what happens so much with pastors, myself included, is when it comes to passages like this, we oftentimes take that passage and we turn it towards Jesus and the church and we say, see, that's what it is. We do that with the Song of Solomon, right? There was a song when I was younger, and, and that wasn't, hard to believe all that long ago, but nonetheless, that there was a, a praise song that was called His Banner Over Me is Love. 
Maybe some of you are familiar with that, with that song, right? That came straight out of the Song of Solomon. Let me let you in on a little piece of exegesis, of understanding. The Song of Solomon has nothing to do with Jesus and his church. It has everything to do between a man and a woman united in marriage has everything to do with a man and a woman expressing love for each other, admiring each other's beauty, and what I mean by that, by their physicality as well as their yeah, personality. It has everything to do with what men and women do on wedding nights, all that kind of stuff. It has everything to do with that. But a pastor, I can't preach that on a Sunday morning. So I turn it into, this is how God loves his church. If that's how God loves his church, uh-uh. I have questions. I have concerns, okay? I love God, and he loves me. I just hope not in that way, okay? So when I came to this psalm this, this time, I thought, oh no, it's Psalm 45. It's a wedding psalm. Oh, I'm going to have to talk about all this stuff, and this is uncomfortable. And we've got kids, and we've got all that kind of stuff, and then... I began to dive, and I, and I just presented that to the team, and you should have seen the discussion that ensued there. Every time I come into our worship planning meetings, and I think, oh, this is going to be a short meeting today. We're going to get out of here early. We're going to get done. Oh, no, this meeting ran over. Dennis's head was hurting. There was weeping and gnashing of teeth. There was, there was just, it was just, it was, I mean, there, I, whew, we were not brethren. <laughs> I mean, and so... As I dived into it, I have an out card. I have an ace in the hole. Psalm 45 is a messianic psalm. And it's not me who says it. It's the church who says it. We have used this psalm for hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years, to describe Jesus and his relationship with the church. So guess what today, church? We're going to look at Psalm 45 as a messianic psalm. Okay, thanks. I appreciate that. And so we're going to look, yes, there are, there are absolutely lessons to be learned between a husband and a wife and, and a marriage coming together, and that is a beautiful thing. But it is also, and I can say this with some good confidence here today, that it is a picture of Jesus, who is the, the groom, and his bride, who is the church. And so today, here's what I want to do. I titled today's message, A King Worth Following. I want to give some reasons today about why I think Jesus is a king worth following. But then I want to end today's message by sharing why I think it's so important for us to choose to follow him. And I, and I hope in doing so that I bring some different perspectives as to why I think it's important for us to consider following Jesus. Notice what I said here. Consider following him. Consider doing that. Okay, and so uh, that's what I want to do today. I want to go through this and share this with you as to why I think Jesus is a king worth following. And then after that, sharing with you why I hope you would consider to do so and why it is essential for us to consider following him. Does that make sense? I'm giving you the roadmap. Okay, so you know where we're going. So that's where I want to go today because there are so many reasons why I think Jesus is so worthy of us to follow him. 
But today, I just want to share what I see here in this psalm from Psalm 45 about why we should choose to follow him. And in doing so, here's what will be kind of the, the side message is I hope you see a aspect of a husband and wife, particularly how they interact and why marriage in this way is, 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 can be a healthy thing, can be a really good thing. And, and how Jesus, who is the groom, treats his bride and, and hopefully as those of us who are men who are married um, can treat our brides as well. That's a side message. It's not the main one. Did you understand me? Okay, that's a side message. Okay, that's, that's off here. It's not the main message. So, whew, that's the intro. <laughs> you t- I told you I struggled with this. So let's dive in to Psalm 45, and I want to give the introduction here. And it says this. I'm going to read the title. I don't know what your title says for this psalm. Here's what my title says in my Bible, and I have the correct one. So it says this. For the music director... According to the tune of lilies, I don't know what that tune is. It was a tune that was fairly known by then, back then. By the Korahites, a well-written poem, a love song. That's what it is. So in other words, let me just take a little time out. This psalm is a love poem, a well-written poem, or a love song to the tune of lilies. But here's the part I want us to focus on is who it was authored by. And it was authored by the Korahites. Now you might be wondering, who are the Korahites? Korah was a relative of Moses, okay? He was a relative of Moses, and in fact, he was a cousin of Moses, and he is known for doing something that he should not have done, and it was this. After Moses brought the people out of Egypt, and they were in the wilderness, a lot of things started to happen. By the way, FYI, a little side note, I bought Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments this past week, and I watched it. It's been years since I watched it. That's a really good movie. It's a really good movie. It's really well done. It's a long movie, but I think it's a really well done movie. But it just reminded me again of what happened here and the people of Israel in the desert complaining and whining and all of this stuff. Well, finally, Korah stands up and says, you know what? I think Moses is wrong. I don't think he's hearing from God. I don't think he's leading us well. I don't think he knows what he's doing. I think I should be the one in charge and lead you all because he's not hearing from God and I think I am. And so he goes to Moses and says, Moses, you're a terrible leader. You're a terrible leader. You don't know what you're doing. You're not hearing from God. You've led us all out here to die. And you know what? I think I should be the one in charge. And Moses says, okay, I tell you what, you may be right, and he really meant it. You may be right. I tell you what we'll do. Let's go and meet with God about this. Only one walked out of the tent, and it wasn't Korah. And not only that, the immediate relatives of Korah all died as well. However, there were descendants that still lived who served in the temple. That's who these people are. And they wrote psalms. There are several psalms that are written by them that are included here. So think about this for a second. Just for a second. People who were descended from someone who challenged not only really the authority of God, not not the authority of Moses, but the authority of God, who are nonetheless now writing praises about him, nonetheless writing and serving faithfully in his temple. 
That is a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful, that's heart change. That is what's happening here. And so these are the authors of this psalm. And so here, with that in mind, let me give you three reasons why I think Jesus is worth following. Here's the first one. Jesus speaks to me and he speaks to you. Now here is what Psalm 45 says. The authors say this. My heart is stirred by a beautiful song. I say I've composed this special song for the king. My tongue is as skilled as the stylus of an experienced scribe. Okay? The, the, the authors can't help but write in response to who this king is. And then they start, and they say in verse 2, You are the most handsome of all men. You speak in an impressive and fitting manner. For this reason, God grants you continual blessings. In other words, we don't even know specifically who the physical king may be that they were referring to. Some think it was Solomon. Obvious choice, right? Some actually think it might be Ahab. Hmm. Okay, fine. Um, not the best king, but so be it. But nonetheless, bigger than that, this is a reference also to Jesus. And here is what is interesting about this is that it, it talks about how the, how the king speaks in an impressive and fitting manner. He speaks in a way, in other words, that is gracious, that is kind, that is merciful. That is really what the fitting manner is alluding to here. And when I think about that, I think about what Jesus says to us. What he says to you and what he says to me. And how gracious he is. How gracious he is. In the ways that he speaks to us. Let me give you a few examples from the New Testament. And these are Jesus's words of just some of the things that he says to us. For instance, John 15, 15. I no longer call you slaves because a slave does not understand what his master is doing. But I have called you friends because I revealed to you everything I heard from my father. Matthew 11, 28 through 30 says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and my load is not hard to carry. John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy and I have come so that you may have life and may have it abundantly. Luke 22 or 23, 43. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Matthew 28, 20. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. These are the things that Jesus speaks to you and I all of the time. All of the time. He speaks these things to us all of the time. In other words, I believe that Jesus' posture towards every single one of us is not that of judgment, but that of mercy. It's not that of hatred, but that of love. It is not that of of impatience, but rather long-suffering. That, I believe, is Jesus' posture towards us. And there are far more things that Jesus says that are gentle and kind and merciful and gracious than there are things when he says, you brood of vipers. There are, he says those things as well. But that's not relevant in this passage. That is not what the author is praising here. What the author is praising is that God speaks to us what we need to hear, when we need to hear it, in a way that is gracious and kind and merciful. Let me give you another example. 
And for me, I, I, I love this example. It's a well-known story of the woman caught in adultery, right? Many of us might remember that story. The woman's caught in adultery and is brought forward in front of everyone. Now think about this. She's caught in adultery. The man's not there who was also caught in it, but that's a story for another time. But nonetheless, she is brought before everyone, publicly shamed and humiliated at this moment, and about to die. Because the penalty for adultery was to stone her. And they bring her to Jesus, and they use her as a pawn, as a tool, as a device to trip him up, for him to say something that they can now get him. They don't want her, they want him. She's just a tool as part of their plan to get to him. And so obviously they say, teacher, this one was caught in adultery. This is the penalty. What say you? Remember what Jesus does is he bends down and he writes in the sand. We don't exactly know what he's writing. There's, there's theories about that. We don't know. That may not be relevant necessarily. The point is he's writing in the sand and then he stands up and then he does something beautiful. He doesn't pile on, does he? He doesn't point out the woman's sin. The woman knows she has sinned. He doesn't pile on as everyone else is piling on. He doesn't mock her. He doesn't shame her. He doesn't make her feel any more guilty than she already does. What he does instead is simply say, he who is without sin cast the first stone. He shamed them. He did to them what they were trying to do to her. In that moment, the woman didn't need to hear that she had sinned. She knew that. It's like describing water to a drowning person. It's not helpful. Person needs a life vest. Doesn't need to know the water you're drowning in. They know they're drowning. Right? They don't need to know and get piled on about how, how, how they messed up and how they screwed up and all that kind of stuff. Have you ever been in a situation where you messed up and the people who responded to you knowing that you messed up and you know you messed up was simply to pile on more and more? Why'd you do that? What were you thinking? I mean, what did you think was going to happen? I mean, how did you think this was going to turn out? You know what I'm talking about? They just pile on. Jesus in that moment doesn't pile on. He takes off the burden. He switches it. He speaks what she needs to hear in that moment. And then he says some beautiful words to her. After everyone dropped their stones and walked away, no one is there now because they've all been convicted. They have all sinned and they know it. And all of a sudden he looks at her and, and she must have had her eyes closed or whatever else, be, being prepared to get stoned because she knew there must be someone out there who has not sinned and that's the person that's going to throw that stone. But nonetheless, no stones are thrown at her. She has her eyes closed most likely and Jesus says to her, where are your accusers? And she looks around and he says, there's no one left. And then he says to her, I don't condemn you either. Now go and sin no more. These are words we need to hear, church. This is what our king speaks to us when we mess up, when we sin, when we do things that we know were wrong and hurtful. We don't need more pile-on. We need more relief, and Jesus provides it at just the right moment. That's what I'm talking about. 
This is what this king speaks in such a fitting manner. And then the author says this, for this reason, God grants you continual blessings. God just blesses this king because he is wise and gentle and gracious and merciful. Now that's reason number one. Here's reason number two. Jesus fights for me and he fights for you. Now I want to share with you what that fight looks like, church, and it ain't what you think it looks like based on what you might hear out on the news cycle or any other else that we might be watching or listening to. Here's what I mean. Listen to what Psalm 45 verses 3 through 6 say. Strap your sword to your thigh, O warrior. Appear in your majestic splendor. Appear in your majesty and be victorious. Ride forth for the sake of what is right on behalf of justice. Then your right hand will accomplish mighty acts. Your arrows are sharp and penetrate the hearts of the king's enemies. Nations fall at your feet. Your throne, O God, is permanent. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. Yes, it is normal wear for a king to strap on some sort of knife or dagger. It is normal for a king to wage war, if necessary, to protect his people to provide for his people, to make sure that the enemies are defeated. That is a very normal thing. What is not normal is how Jesus does this. What is not normal is how Jesus fights for you and for me. Jesus fights to right wrongs, to reestablish relationships, to defeat sin and death, and he does not do it with a sword or an army, but in humility, dying on a cross. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 says this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, in other words, since people are human, he, that being Jesus, likewise shared in their humanity, so that through death he could destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and set free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. That's how Jesus wages war. He gave up his life. Jesus wages war not by taking a sword and, and going out and just fighting everything and everyone. No, no, Jesus, instead, what he does is he doesn't resist. He willingly gives up his life to, to die for his church, to die for you and I, so that we could be free from sin and from death. That's how Jesus fights. I love how one missionary says it pretty bluntly. He says this, when you become a Christian, you are not on earth to fight for Jesus. Let me say that again. When you and I become a Christian, we are not on earth to fight for Jesus. Did you hear me? Jesus doesn't need defending. Jesus can defend himself. Jesus doesn't need us to fight for him. That hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. How many of you sang that hymn? How many of you even know that hymn? Onward Christian Soldiers, right? And we talk about gearing up for battle. Oh yeah, send me Lord. We're going to gear up for battle. Yeah, the problem with that, it's not the things that you think we need to go into battle that God calls us to wear. It's things like faith. It's things like truth. It's things like that. 
God doesn't need us to fight for him. He doesn't need us to defend him. That is not what he needs us to do. What he needs us to do is to do what Jesus did, and that is to actually lay down our lives for others, to serve others. That's what he needs us to do. Let Jesus do the fighting. Let us do whatever else he has called us to do, which is to serve and to give our lives for others. He fights for us. What I love about this is the fact that Jesus, when he saw us in sin and death, he didn't just say, well, good luck with that. Hope that turns out well for you. No, immediately, even in the earliest pages of Genesis, there is a plan in place that he was going to die for every single one of us. There was a plan in place already that he was going to redeem us. He was never going to just let us live this way and suffer this way needlessly. He was never going to let us go this way without fighting for us. Do you understand this, church? Jesus fights for you and for me. He never wants to see us in death, in pain, in sorrow for all of eternity. He fights for us. It just doesn't look the way we think it should look. It just doesn't look that way. Oh, Jesus, I, play, I pray that you would all come down and just, and just smite these people. I mean, we're a little bit like James and John, aren't we? You remember that story when Jesus was having to go through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem, and he was denied entry to some villages? You know what James and John said to him? Hey, you know what, Jesus? Why don't we just call down fire from heaven and just char all these people? Right? What did Jesus say? Hey, you're right. I can go for some barbecue. He didn't do that. He said, no, we're not going to do that. That's not what Jesus, that's not how Jesus fights. Some of us might think, well, Jesus is a wimp. Okay, you can believe that. I don't know how, who else could have ever defeated Satan in sin and death. If you've got a better plan, let me hear it. I doubt it's better. I doubt it's better. Anytime we as Christians have taken up control or thought, God, you're moving too slow, or God, you're not being too hard, or God, you're, not, you're just not fighting here. Let us take this up. It has gone poorly. It has gone poorly. It just has. It has gone poorly. All right, here's the third reason. Oh, and by the way, I love this. Two words I want to share with you. Scepter. That word scepter there. They talked about this, by the way, is where Hebrews 1 uh, verses 8 through 9 quotes, talking about Jesus in Hebrews here. This idea that your throne, O God, is permanent. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. That word for scepter is obviously rod, but it can also mean this, clan, tribe, people. In other words, we are marked in his kingdom as people who are upright, who are in good standing, who have been made right because of the death that Jesus did for us. That's his kingdom. That's who he is. Now, here's a third reason why I think Jesus is worthy of following, and it's this. Jesus has chosen me, and he has chosen you. Now, this gets a little longer. Psalm 45, verses 7 and onward says this. You love justice and hate evil, and for this reason, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy. By the way, now the, the, the narrative changes. It's no longer describing the king. It's now describing the bride. Okay, it's describing the bride here. It goes on and says this. 
all your garments are perfumed with myrrh, aloes, and cassia. And the luxurious palaces comes the music of stringed instruments that make you happy. Princesses are among your honored women. Your bride stands at your right hand, wearing jewelry made with gold and ophir. Listen, O princess, observe and pay attention. Forget your homeland and your family. Then the king will be attracted by your beauty. After all, he is your master. Submit to him. Rich people from Tyre will seek your favor by bringing a gift. The princesses look absolutely magnificent, decked out in pearls and clothed in a brooch trimmed with gold. Gold, excuse me. In embroidered robes, she is escorted to the king. Her attendants, the maidens of honor who follow her, are led before you. They are bubbling with joy as they walk in procession and enter the royal palace. Your sons will carry on the dynasty of your ancestors. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will proclaim your greatness through the coming years. Then the nations will praise you forever. Do you know what that is all saying? It's saying a lot. Let me just sum it up for you. It's saying this. God has chosen you and me, and he has picked us up out of the filth of sin and death, rags that we are covered in, and he has given us new clothing, a new identity, one in which now we are no longer defined by the sins that we have committed, no longer defined by the penalty we would have suffered, but rather defined by the life he has now given us, rather now draped and clothed in the glory that is Christ, that we have now can now exude his love and his glory for everyone else to see. We have been given new clothing, a new life, a new identity. And not only that, an incredibly bright future. Incredibly bright future. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 4 says this, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. For he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Did you hear that, church? He chose you and he chose me before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. You and I are not an accident. You and I are not here by chance. We have been created for a reason, a purpose, and that purpose is to know that we have been chosen by Christ and in response to choose willingly to love and serve him. And like a bride, we who are his church are adorned beautifully for a wedding. We are adorned with the glory of Christ. Mother Teresa, I thought, had a very good insight on this. And she said the following. A Christian is the dwelling place of the living God. Did you hear that? You and I are the temple that Christ now dwells in. He created me. He chose me, he came to dwell in me because he wanted me. Now that you have known how much God is in love with you, it is but natural that you should spend the rest of your life radiating that love. These are three reasons why I think Jesus is worth following. He speaks to us, he fights for us, and he's chosen us. Now here's why I think it's important for us to consider to follow him. And I want to say something that maybe you have not heard but maybe you know. Maybe you know. But I'm going to say it publicly. And I may wind up on social media somewhere as a result. We are natural-born 
followers. Sometimes you may have heard, oh, you're a natural-born leader. You're a natural-born leader. Man, you just know how to lead. Yeah. Yeah, but first you were a natural-born follower. I was reading interesting in this, for this message this morning. Um, from the earliest beginnings of our life, as we have come out of the womb and as we were just little babies, do you know that babies begin to mimic their parents' expressions? We follow what our parents do. We, our earliest exposure to that. We are natural-born followers. We will do anything to be a part of some group. We will do anything to have people that we can call friends, even if it means we might have to change who we are to do it because we want to be a part of that group. We want to have those kinds of friends. We want to have that kind of job. We want to be a part of this kind of church. We will actually do it. We are natural-born followers. We follow incredibly well. We just do. We just do. And in some ways, and in many ways, every single one of us have followed people and things that have not been good for us, that have been destructive for us, that have not led us to what we hope it would lead us to, but in fact, maybe just the opposite. As I was sharing with the worship team about what I was possibly going to share this morning, it was interesting because one of the things that came to mind was people who follow people who abuse them. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's an employer. Maybe it's a friend. Or maybe it's a pastor. And you know what? We put up with it. We put up with it. We put up with it for all kinds of reasons, don't we? We put up with it because we're fearful that if we leave, we don't know where else we're going to go. We put up with it because if we leave, we don't know who, we're gonna, who we are after that because we've tied our identity to that person or that thing. If, 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 if we leave, we don't know who we're going to follow next or what's going to happen. And perhaps one of the worst things in life, other than death, is uncertainty. Deborah shared with me some stats, and I hope I got this right. One in four women go back to their abuser. One in four. One in seven. Men go back to their abuser. People stay in jobs where they are taken advantage of, where they are abused because they don't know where else they can get work and they've got a family to support. There are people who stay in churches their entire lives in which the pastor or pastors have spiritually abused them and they know no difference. They've taken advantage of them. They have manipulated them 
and they still go there. And it is hard. And it is difficult. We are natural born followers. The Apostle Paul basically said this, you can choose to be a slave to Christ or a slave to sin. And we get tripped up in the word slave. I get it. So let me phrase it a little bit differently. You can either follow Christ or you can follow sin. And let me just share with you this morning, out of all of this, it is not easy to give up following someone or something that we have followed for a long time that has never been healthy for us. And dare I say, the church hasn't made that any easier in many ways. Oftentimes we have shared with people who have come out of abused relationships or in the midst of abused relationships, you got to forgive the person, you got to go back to them, that's what Christ would do. No, I think Christ might have a different response. Which is why I understand to some degree what it means to choose to follow Jesus and to no longer follow someone or something that you have followed for a good portion of your life. It takes courage. And that's really hard. For me, I, I sometimes think, well, why don't you just do it? Why don't you just do it? And that's insensitive. And that's wrong. It's not easy. If it was, everyone would do it. So this morning, I want to just encourage you. Because here's another reason why Jesus is so worthy of us to follow him, is that he will never force you to do it. He will never manipulate you to do it. He will never guilt you into doing it. He won't. You have to choose. Romans chapter 6, verses 21 through 23 says this, So what benefit did you then reap? from those things that you are now ashamed of. He's talking specifically about sin, the things we have done. For the end of those things is death. But now, freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have your benefit leading to sanctification. And the end is eternal life. For the payoff is, of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this morning, it's hard. But I want to encourage you, consider following Jesus. Consider following him. Stop following someone or something else, and I know that's hard. And maybe today it can start the process of maybe turning away from that. It may not be the full-fledged turning away quite yet, because that takes time and courage and all of those things wrapped into there. But maybe today can be a start. Maybe today can be a start. So what I'd like us to do this morning is we're going to sing. And I want to invite up our, our pastors and any of our elders who are here. And maybe today you find yourself following someone or something you know is not healthy. Come on up. Pastors, elders, it's okay. Maybe today you might find yourself following someone or something that's not healthy and you know it. 
and you know you need to stop this. You know you need to change. You know you need to get away from this addiction, this person, this thing, whatever it is. And maybe today can be a start to that. Please, I want to encourage you. Come and talk to any one of us. We'd be happy to pray for you. We'd be happy to help journey with you through this because it's not easy and you should never do this alone, ever. And so as we're singing, if you feel led, if you want to come up and talk to any one of us, and we'll pray with you. We'll journey with you. We'll help in any way we can to help you to start following, to choose to follow Jesus. Because brothers and sisters, I believe he is absolutely worthy of us following him. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, there are many things people say you are. There are many things people say you are, Jesus, and some are true, but many are not. And I am grateful, Jesus, that through your word this morning, we can know a little bit more of who you truly are. that you're a God who deeply cares and loves us, that you're a God who is deeply merciful and gracious to us, that you're a God who deeply desires to be in relationship with us, so much so that you died for us. And Jesus, I pray this morning that all of us, whether or not we have been following you for some time or haven't even followed you at all, that all of us today would choose to follow you, Father. Because we know who you are. We know that you have what's best for us in mind. It may not be easy. It may not be our picture of what it is. But we know, Father, we know you have what is best for us. Jesus, I pray now that as we sing, as we close this time this morning, I pray, Jesus, that we would consider the words that we are singing and consider the one to whom we are singing it to. And that we would choose to follow you. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.